I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop, where tonight we're delighted to welcome Simon Critchley and Juliet Jakes to talk about Simon's new book, What We Think About When We Think About Football, published by Profile. Um, thank you, Profile, as well, Valentina. Um, thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be able to welcome back both of our guests. Simon's been here a few times before to talk about his books, The Hamlet Doctrine, in, I think, 2013, and more recently in 2016, on Bowie. Juliet, also no stranger to the shop came to talk about her memoir, Trans, I think in 2015, and was here just in September to talk about the work of Kathy Acker with Chris Kraus. But perhaps most crucially for this evening, I should say Simon's a Liverpool fan. Boo, boo. Oh. No, I'm joking, sorry. Oh. And Juliet is a Norwich fan, which, unless, it, you know, maybe that's already clear. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're in yellow and green as Louis, well. Yeah, yeah, yellow Perfect. and green, yeah. I've got a note, insert appropriate jokes at their team's expense, but I'm an Everton fan, so I'm not going to say anything. Because that's probably a big enough joke in itself, isn't it? Anyway, it's a pleasure to have you both back. Thank you both very much for coming. Please join me in a really warm welcome for our guests. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Right, yeah, Simon has turned up looking really smart. And now I kind of feel like a kid who's, like, been told by some other kids that it was, like, wear your own clothes to school day. <laughs> when it wasn't. <laughs> I, wear, I wear, you know, when I, go, every, when I travel, I wear Liverpool training tracksuit. Every breakfast, everywhere I am, I've got Liverpool stuff. So, no, I do wear the shirt. <laughs> I do wear the shirt, but not tonight. <laughs> But I, I, the sponsorship thing gets... I just can't... You know. I mean, yeah, I kind of like this because it's like a sort of name of like a windows firm from like <laughs> Norwich, which has long since ceased to trade. Um, so uh, people were told this was going to be about the book. It's largely just about like the history of like sponsorship on football shirts. Um, so before we start, like, I don't know, like, part of what Simon's book is exploring is the sort of... Um, the sort of ways in which we think philosophically about football, the way in which the sport kind of, you know, can be interpreted through philosophical frames, because Simon's written on uh, Derrida and Heidegger, and I think both of whom come up in this book, uh, and many other aspects of continental philosophy. Um, so I'm just going to, like, try and get the measure of the audience by asking a few questions. How many people in the room would say they like football? Good, that's most of you. 
How many of you uh, support a team? That's also most of you. Um, how many people have a season ticket at the team you support? Uh, how many of you have like been to a game in say the last sort of five years? Um, how many of you remember Jeremy Goss's goal against Bayern Munich <laughs> in 1993? I'm going to mostly be talking to you ten people. Um, great. So I think we've, you know, we can safely say we've got a fairly football literate crowd. Um, so, it's uh, a fairly obvious question, Simon, but um, given, given the range of um, philosophical um, mm -hmm. interests that you have and that you've kind of covered in your writing, um, what, what made you want to write this book? I'd written some short things about football for different places. Then, then I got an invitation to go to Basel about a year and a half ago, and it coincided with the... It was about a month after the... Uh, finally, the, the Europa Cup, mm. Liverpool, Sevilla in Basel. So I had this whole narrative in my head that Liverpool would win in Basel and I would turn up in clouds of glory <laughs> and talk about football and everyone would be really happy. And instead we lost. We didn't just lose, we were humiliated in Basel. Which is kind of what football's about. It's about disappointment and failure. It's not just about disappointment yeah. and failure. It's about disappointment <laughs> and failure, but it, that, I mean, that's, that's fine. I mean, life, is, you know, life is like that, right? But it's about disappointment and failure with that ever-renewed feeling of hope, right? You don't quite believe that you're going to lose all the time. There's mm. that feeling of hope flickers and burns and all that stuff. So that's how it began. And then I had a, a strange week in New York and something began to come together. The theoretical piece in the jigsaw was I, I read after years and years and years a book that was not that important to me, but important, uh, Hans-Georg Gadamer's Truth and Method. It begins with an account of play. As I was reading Gadamer, I suddenly realized that this worked perfectly as an account of football. And what he's trying to do, Gadamer, in that book, which is kind of what I'm trying to do in, in, the, um, in this book, is to, to get away from two, two, two errors. One error is to believe that football is explained by what's going on in our heads. Brain processes, inward states, or you ask a footballer what they think about a game and they say, well, I thought it was a game of two halves. Some, some banality we'll, we'll try out. That explains nothing. But also the objective attempt to explain football through, through metrics, through data, mm -hmm. through what the Germans call a packing rate, whatever it might be, all of these. And now we're flooded with a kind of data-driven... Mm -hmm approach to football. Both a subjective approach and an objective approach miss the phenomenon of play. So what interests me in what interests me is the phenomenon of, of play. And that phenomenon of play is something which you are when you are engaging in the watching of it, you are outside of your head in a state of what I call in the book sensei ecstasy. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a huge sensorium of experience and you're out there with things, you're not reflecting inwardly, you're, you're thinking, you're cogitating in relationship to this, this living phenomenon which allows you to touch on questions of time, space, reason, being, and all these huge philosophical topics. And then I began to realize as I was writing the book, it was June, it was warm, I was probably deluded or ill or something like that. Most of the things that I, wanted to be, what, that I want to be true philosophically are particularly true of, of football, perhaps only true of football. So I then began to 
pull it together. And then, oh, oh, before we go on, can I, can I just thank a couple of people? Of course. I want to thank, most of all, Mark Ellingham, uh, my editor, without whom this book would not exist because it was a, a twinkle in my eye and it's a long... So I want to thank Mark. I want to thank the whole family unit over there as well. Miles and Nat and everybody else and Sienna and everybody. And, the, um, and I want to thank uh, Nemini and Rosie and I want to thank Louis who's just had to leave in his Norwich colours. I want to thank <laughs> Ida, my girlfriend. I want to thank... Thank you all for coming. So that concludes the evening's discussion. And <laughs> thank you the for coming. The rest of the evening will be a dissection of Norwich City's two Norwich. win at Bayern Munich. That's right. Um, Norwich, I've got, you know, because <laughs> my second team, when I was trying to kind of program my son to like football, was uh, I lived, I was teaching at the University of Essex and the closest decent team was Ipswich Town. So his old man literally said, be an Ipswich fan. He said, we, we'll go, it's the nearest ground, we, we'll go. That's right. <laughs> Second team. Yeah. <laughs> dear, dear, dear. No <laughs> they can't choice. Can yeah, do you choose a football team or just a football yeah, team? I, I, I mean, I mean, I grew up in Surrey, and I should probably support Crystal Palace, and it just didn't mm-hmm. appeal to me as a as a kid, really. And like Norwich were kind of half decent, and I sort of thought, oh, surely they'll only keep getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm stuck with them. It's just it doesn't make any sense, and I've just spent. The last 25 years just fielding the question why do you support Norwich without any uh, sort of adequate um, explanation. I want to get past that you know I sort of been to quite a lot of games and you know feel I've sort of engaged with the sort of the club and its history on, on you know a pretty sort of commendable level but you know um, Foucault in Madness and Civilization says that sort of madness follows Aristotelian logic from a delusional central premise and I think mm-hmm. that's kind of how my supporting Norwich City has played out. Um, yeah. I mean, I um, I didn't want to talk about Ipswich. Um, I wanted to um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you why why this title for this book? What we think about when we think about football? That was Mark's idea to ask him. <laughs> I mean, it's um, I sort of saw this phrase in the Guardian today. Yeah. Um, there was a, a piece by Marina Hyde um, about Andy Gray and Richard Keys, who. Um, Basically, Marina Hyde is doing a really sterling service to all football fans in Britain by continuing to pay attention to Andy Gray and Richard Keyes <laughs> so that we don't have to. Because um, they're in Qatar now. Um, and they're broadcasting from there. And they had Sam Allardyce so, on as a who guest. Who are they broadcasting for? Oh, I, think they, oh, I can't BN remember what it is. BN Sports. Okay. But um, they had Sam Allardyce on. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were talking to Sam Allardyce about how English coaches can't get the top English jobs anymore. Right. And, you know, it's a politically correct conspiracy to appoint, say, Jurgen Klopp or Jose Mourinho or something over like Alan Pardew. Political correctness gone mad. It really is. And, um, <laughs> you know, Sam Allardyce was literally the manager of England for, like, six weeks, I That's think. That's right, yeah. Um, before a corruption scandal kind of cost him the job. Um, and obviously Gray and Keyes are no longer on Sky because, you know, there's some serial sexual harassment. Uh, and, you know, the three of them are sat on a sofa in Qatar talking about the good old days when, like, English managers could get English jobs and things. And, of course, they're talking about Brexit. They're not talking about football at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, that's Brexit right there, those mm-hmm. three people on a sofa discussing yeah. the dearth of English managers. Um, but, you know, I think the sort of the, the metaphorical and particularly sort of political um, connotations of football are really interesting. And you mm-hmm. open the book... 
what a segue. You opened the book by um, <laughs> talking about how football is sort of essentially sort of socialistic in, uh, in its nature. And you yeah. talk about people like Paul Breitner, Brian mm-hmm. Clough, Bill Shankly, who all spoke quite eloquently about mm-hmm. that. Uh, you talk about them and the sort of contrast with the sort of like just capitalist hellscape of contemporary football. Mm-hmm. And how hard that sort of contradiction is to bridge as both fans and as people who think about the game. So I, I wondered if you could like expand a bit more on yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's a contradiction that cannot be reconciled or overcome. It's just, it's a felt contradiction that most fans know all about, right? That, you know, so that football, I, I kick off from the idea of football as association football, from which we incidentally get the abbreviation soccer, so soccer is not an Americanism, whatever. And so association football, the idea of association, I link that to a kind of description of the association collaboration in relationship to play. So football, unlike, say, many other sports, uh, particularly, say, the big US sports, but equally, you could say, many other sports like cricket, um, is not in any way, it's about a collaborative, it's a collaborative, the being of, it's a big of a team. And you can have terrific players, but it's about, it's about a team and the association of a team. So linking that idea of associations, the association of the, the different players on the pitch, the association of, between that and the fans, and that's what really interests me, and then linking that to Marx's remark, which isn't about football, the association of free human beings in Capital Volume 1, and making a sort of leap of thought there and saying the form, the form of football is socialism. And the historical fact about football, as we all know, is that most of the associations out of which the football teams emerge go back to working people's associations, clubs, boys' clubs, whatever they might be. So there is that sense in which football is deeply grounded in a locality, a community, an association, and yet one which allows for this, this conflict and this, this, this violence of this conflict. Yet, so the form of football, I argue, is socialism, picking up on Shankly and Clough or whatever. But the material content of football is money, right? and money in ever more vulgar and extreme forms, the examples of which will be clear to all of you who watch the game. And the, um, there's, there's, um, it would be nice to imagine a universe where those two things could be reconciled mm-hmm. or where you, as we're ch- chatting downstairs before this, you would stop supporting a team when a certain thing happens. You were saying about someone that you know who stopped supporting Chelsea when Abramovich took over Chelsea, and I know someone, that, uh, a, Cat- a Catalan, man who stopped watching Barcelona when they got the Qatar Foundation sponsorship, so things like that. So there's something for me essentially dirty and disgusting about football. So football is a, is a, is a symptom of you know, everything that's wrong with the world, yeah. everything. Uh, the corruption, the, the nationalism, the, um, uh, the, the, the neo-colonialism, the, all, that, all that stuff. So football is the world at its worst, and yet there's this phenomenon of play. And that, so I think what, what's interesting about football for, for me is you can't feel good about it. You mm. can't just affirm it and think, well, you know, football is terrific, we love football. Football is to, to like football, to be engaged in football, is to, be, is to live that kind of contradiction and compromise. You have to be very relativist, I think. Um, Wait, how do you mean? These days. Well, as you say, the sort of the enterprise of football is so kind of corrupt, um, and you have to. I think at this point you have to kind of at least acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. 
at the start. Um, I mean, I remember talking to a friend of mine a few years ago about Manchester City. Right. Who, of course, you know, were owned by Thatch and Shinawatra for a year, who was wanted for, like, multiple human rights abuses in Thailand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he sold the club to a group of, like, Middle Eastern uh, investors. And, um, you know, I, I said to my, my dear friend Joe Stretch, who's a big football fan, somebody I talked about football a lot, uh, and I said I couldn't get behind Manchester City for that reason. He just said, well, look, if you accept capitalism, then... And it's kind of interesting that, yeah, that has to be the starting point for any appreciation of a team, mm-hmm. of a successful team now. I mean, this was, this was something I wanted to draw you on a bit. Like, do you think uh, an ethical football or an ethically acceptable kind of top-level football is possible under capitalism? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> Me no. neither. Yeah. I, think it's, I think it's always a, it's, it's a compromise. There, there are forms of, forms of behaviour that football produces or are linked to it which have distinct moral you know moral connotations i think the way in which oddly for me the way in which people talk about football right uh, to each other is a paradigm for a kind of moral kind of behavior right there's, you know you see, you see this what okay so one, there's a chapter in the book called intelligence which comes after a chapter called stupidity and I talk about the stupidity of football and why that's important, but the intelligence of football, the intelligence of fans, the fact that football is one of the few areas of life I'm aware of where there is an exercise of reason, argument, back and forth, which can be from... It could be like us here, it could be, you know, with a, a 10-year-old kid or whatever, or it could be different generations, different, different genders, different ways of seeing the world that's football allows for that has that capacity for uh, for, for reason right in, in a very strange and you can change your mind so I can have my passionately held conviction about my team and the way I see things I have an argument with someone I change my mind mm. so what you have in football is what you're meant to have in something like philosophy right mm. that philosophy is should be about strongly held convictions and passions which are organized, shaped through rational dialogue back and forth. Except in philosophy, nobody ever changes their minds, right? <laughs> and I give an example in the book of Bernard Williams, a very distinguished philosopher who died some years ago, who, like me, sat, I've sat through 30 years of people giving papers in philosophy departments. Mm-hmm. On no occasion have I ever experienced somebody, after a paper finished, saying, thank you, you know, Mr. Smith, you know, that's a completely convincing argument. I've now changed my mind and I agree with you completely. It never happens. People never change their minds. So there's something, and the one example, William says that there was an, he was on a government commission and somebody, um, um, a philosopher who was on that commission who didn't believe there should be legislation on child pornography, uh, having seen several days of evidence of child pornography, eventually changed their mind. On, William said that's the only time I've seen a philosopher change their mind. So... But football, by contrast, is an area where there's this, this malleability, mm. where that we use reason. It's local. It's rooted in, in um, deep you know, emotional commitments in place, in history, in a kind of living archive of, that goes back um, centuries, and where we can shift orientation. And where, you know, I've got my beliefs about Liverpool Football Club, and I meet someone who's got their beliefs about their club, and we can talk about it. If only the rest of life will. So that's 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 the that's the the moral side of football. Yeah, that, that's um, all right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, 
one one thing that just flashed into my head when you were saying about people not changing their minds is um, I think for anyone who goes to football matches there are very few more entertaining experiences than standing in front of two people who spend the whole game slagging off a player that you think is quite good right who then right. scores yeah and then listening yeah. to the contortions yeah, yeah, yeah. as they yeah. whether yeah. they're going to decide that okay is actually all right or are we still shit but that was lucky or someone else did all the work or you know whatever there's something about the sort of the way football is structured there's an interesting mix of of kind of objective facts, but room for subjectivity and interpretation. Mm -hmm. um, and also, with, with, also with, this is key, is, is it's, it's with um, what interests me. This is another link to other stuff that interests me, but I'm interested in, in theatre, right, and for all sorts of reasons. But, and I'm very interested in, in Brecht's idea of epic theatre, yeah. which we'd have to talk about, but it comes up a little bit in the book. And Brecht was trying to imagine an audience for his theatre, and one thing he said, he wanted an audience that was relaxed. And one thing that interests me about a football crowd is their relaxation. I mean, they can be mm. animated, passionate, but there's a kind of, they know what's going on. They know the score. Mm. They know what's taking place. They're not sitting there like a bunch of cramped, neurotic wretches in a theatre saying, is this good? Is this not good? I don't know. <laughs> is this, uh, you, you, they are, yeah. there's, a kind of, there's, a, there's a knowledge that football fans have, ability to share that and a relaxation, and that gives fans, and also when they're doing this mixture of utter stupidity mm. and intelligence, right? So I was in Turin the other night, went to see Torino Cagliari, and the last 10 minutes of that involved um, the Torino fans shouting, bastardo, bastardo, bastardo to the referee. <laughs> it's great, you know, bastardo, We have a translation for any non-Italian yeah, speakers. Yeah, yeah, and, um, and pretty stupid, but yeah. you know, but you see, so there's something about the stu stupidity of football, the evident stupidity of football, at the same time as this wonderful example of reason and intelligence. But no, it sounds a daft thing to say if you've no, not I mean, done it, but it, it's true. I completely agree. I find football a really nice sort of release from the rest of my life in that way. I mean, mm -hmm. all the rest of my life is kind of like hanging around the fringes of sort of artistic or literary circles. And, you know, every other Saturday I'm on a train with a group of my friends and, you know, we don't have to talk about any of that stuff. We don't want to. And, you know, the journeys will be a mixture of kind of memories that have been generated through kind of years or decades even of supporting the same team and going mm -hmm. to the same place at the same time kind of over and over again. With the same sense of you know, expectation. Yeah. Disappointment. And, Although paradoxically, yeah. there'll be points where we don't know who we're playing. There's something about... Um, right. There's something about kind of going every week that does something quite strange to the way you sort of apprehend football. Like when I was just kind of listening on the radio or whatever, mm -hmm. I'd always know who we were playing weeks ahead and, you know, who was injured, who was likely to play. And now I'm kind of like, oh, I'll get the train at 11 on a Saturday morning and I'll get to the ground at sort of five oh, to three really and I'll work it all out. There. And there times when we go into the game, there were like four of us sat together. Like, Who are we playing? Someone will get their phone out. It's Brentford. Um, <laughs> and I, I find that very interesting as well. Yeah, that, that sort of space for, yeah, like you say, that sort of stupidity. Mm -hmm. um, Licentiousness. Yeah, candor, absolutely. And things that people say in football in games. And you can lose, you just lose yourself in this wild stuff that's said. And, it's, it, it, and then it, that can be obviously not very ethical. Right. You know, oh God, I mean, it constantly pushes a line, you know, mm -hmm. which things do I find funny, which things do I just find mm -hmm. abhorrent, which things um, do I kind of find funny that I wouldn't allow myself to find funny in pretty much any other context. Mm -hmm. And those sort of ethical grey areas of like being in a crowd who are behaving in a way that is kind of morally dubious. Um, 
you know, no one really prepares you when you start watching football for those sorts of like constant mm-hmm. um, moral moral anxieties. Um, but can we talk about your um, your sort of phenomenological approach to football? I mean, that's kind of the way you get around this tension with the sort of capitalistic nature of football is to focus on the phenomenology of really mostly what happens in the stadia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if we could um, could maybe let the audience in on that a bit more. Yeah. You know, the form of football is socialism, is my initial claim, is the, the, contradic- the, the, the material content of it is money, and that is like an open wound which shapes our experience of the game. So football is awful, hideous, disgusting, but it's also a beautiful, beautiful game. But what does it mean to, to say that? And can we imagine a poetics of football? And I take the idea of a poetics of football, as I recall from, from Jean-Philippe Toussaint's which came out with Fitzcarraldo called Football, um, which we could talk about, we don't have to talk about, but what would poetics of football be like? And my approach to poetics is to do that phenomenologically. And by phenomenology, I just mean uh, phenomenology is the attempt to find words, descriptions for what shows up in experience. What I'm not doing in the book very clearly in my mind is doing a philosophy of football. This is not a philosophy of football. It's not an attempt to understand football in terms of a series of of categories or axioms or to prove some series of metaphysical claims. So I begin with a quotation from William James. What interests James was experience, the variety of religious experience, what he called in the late work, pure experience. And that means that if you accept that, the work of someone who's a philosopher or a writer, it wouldn't really matter about the difference between those things, is to attend to experience and try and find something, some grain, some, some reality to that experience, and to find words that evoke that in terms that do not suffocate it or, or nullify it. So phenomenology is an attempt to render the vivacity of experience in terms which do not kill it. That's what I try and do. The first question about why I wrote the book, it's what people normally think of as philosophy um, is that philosophers provide a kind of metaphysical picture of things, like a a foundational uh, framework of intelligibility from which we can then infer all sorts of empirical instances about things that take place in the world. Uh, That's Platonism, and that's a disaster from which we're still... We're still living in different forms. What I try to do, the, the, the approach to philosophy that interests me, is to flip that around and to try and... Uh, the only thing that one can do is to kind of serve the grain and, and richness of experience and to find concepts that come out of that experience but which find an echo in that experience but which make that experience more explicit. So all I'm trying to do in the book is to try and pull out something that I think is tacitly learnt there in the experience of football and which... The, the participants in that game, by which, I mean, by which I mean the fans, they're already aware of, but it's kind of implicit but not explicit. And that's the attempt to try to pull that out, rather than to sort of read football through some conceptual grid. That's not what I'm trying to do. I think, you know, read the book, one of the sort of tensions that I found quite interesting was the way you talk about fans' relationships with their teams and contrast that with the sort of fans' relationships with individual players. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I think do invoke a sort of completely different way of kind of watching and a completely different set of emotions. Um, I relate to like 
you know, in my case, Norwich City as a kind of team and uh, the players kind of come and go. But, right. you know, there have been several generations of professional footballers now kind of worldwide in the time since I started watching in the early 90s. And there'll be individual players who I, um, who I pick up and become very interested in or become kind of fans of. Um, like Chris Sutton. Much like Chris Sutton, um, of course, is an excellent pundit as well. But um, <laughs> God, he's awful. Uh, I was actually going to talk about Zinedine Zidane. Um, oh, right. He actually nearly ended up playing with Chris Sutton. Kenny Dalglish apparently wanted to sign Zidane for Blackburn in 1995. Really? After he won the league. And he went back oh. to uh, Jack Walker, the chairman of, of Blackburn Rovers, and said, Bordeaux have got these two players, Christophe Dugary and Zinedine Zidane. I want to sign them. And <laughs> Jack Walker apparently said, why do we need Zidane when we've got Tim Sherwood? So, um, <laughs> Poor Kenny, you know, people around him just let him down. But, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have a chapter on Zidane. Uh, you talk about Jean-Philippe Toussaint's writing about Zidane. Yeah. You talk about Douglas Gordon and Philippe Pereno's film about Zidane, A mm -hmm. 21st Century Portrait, where they train cameras on just him. Mm -hmm. for a, I think they put 17 cameras on him for a game <laughs> between Real Madrid and Villarreal in 2005. Mm -hmm. um, and really attempted to sort of just capture the kind of reality of how Zidane played football you know, by a sort of set of sort of weird coincidences. Um, it was almost as if Zidane was promoting the film. He gets sent off after 85 minutes of this game between mm -hmm. Real Madrid and Villarreal. It was very considerate of him to get sent off after a feature-length amount of time. That's right, that's right, um, that's right. Because if he got sent off after 25 minutes, it would have been stuck in a gallery. But, um, and, you know, he also got sent off in the 2006 World Cup final, maybe to promote the film. Right. Um, um, the, film was, the film was released in Cannes, I think, the, the month before. The, yeah, it, was, it worked very well. Yeah, promotional yeah, device, I mean, yeah. I, I think, again, if France had lost to Spain in the second round, then people wouldn't have been watching it. But um, Toussaint writes about the 2006 World Cup final in a very interesting way. He was there. I mean, this is a very roundabout way of saying that, you know, Zidane is somebody who I think had a sort of quite interesting, quite unique appeal to people who are interested in sort of the arts and football, there was something almost kind of avant-garde about the way he played, I think. Mm -hmm. There was a visionary type of passing and movement that you hadn't really seen anywhere else. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if I could talk to you a bit about your writing about Zidane and why he was of particular interest to you. Well, the film, it begins, you know, well, obviously I, I watched a lot of Zidane over the years, <clears> but the film, when I, I saw that for the, the first time, it, it, yeah, it, it's an extraordinary kind of evocation of um, the poetics of football. I mean, the problem with it, before I say what's good about it, I mean, the problem with it in many ways is its individual focus, right? Mm. We're focused on Zidane, portrait of the 21st century, and what I said about football is it's a collaborative sport. There's a, there's a, a 90 second YouTube video of a, a Barcelona, let's say Barcelona Villarreal game, shot from, I mean, uh, the edge of the stadium, so distant shot. And you see that the entire movement of the Barcelona mm. team, this is say 10 years ago from this very distant view, viewpoint. And what you see is just the, 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 the matrix of players moving and the grid and this kind of shifting grid. It's difficult, it's the beauty of him, mm -hmm. right? The beauty of this, this figure. And, uh, and grace, there's something about the, the, the kind of un, unforced grace of, of Zidane's bodily movement, which other players have, but Zidane had it in this incredibly powerful way. And the commentary on the film, uh, the. I know Douglas Gordon film is interesting because he talks about this again the experience of the game from his perspective and the fact that there is this presence of, of, of sound. Il y a du son, 
the, the noise of the crowd, the sound of the crowd, the way in which you're pulled in and out of the game. And he talks about this one moment. Tom writes about this, um, about the um, when he scored a goal and he the he knew before his foot had contact with the ball what was going to happen, and that experience of fate, right? And, and at the same time, so Zidane is is everything that's beautiful about football, and everything that's hideous and awful and catastrophic about football. He's a puppet. He's adorned with you know, Zeman's uh, mm. sponsorship. He, every aspect of his being is, is mediated, is owned, is sponsored, is advertised. So he is your completely compromised modern football individual. And yet, at the same time, there is this gesture that a player like Zidane has, which is you know, a gesture of, of beauty and grace. And that's what I was trying to kind of evoke in Ages on Zidane, and there's something about Zidane's ability to accelerate, which is I mean, like in the you see this in the in the film, because he wasn't that fast necessarily no. as a player, but he had this ability to move mm. over a short twenty-yard stretch and just kind of. I think he sets up the winning goal, doesn't yeah. he? It's incredible, it's like byline, burst and cross. He crosses yeah. it. And it's just that that kind of um, a body can do that is is an extraordinary thing, and um, and also that Zidane is 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 wedded to catastrophe. Mm. Right. Uh, this is you know, the black card of melancholy, as, as Toussaint said. This is not the red card of dismissal. There's a sense in which, uh, and this is what I sometimes think about football, that football isn't really a sport in the sense in which it's not really about chance. Obviously, that's wrong. It's about chance. It's a sport. But there's a sense with football more than with other sports. That I'm sure people have it with, you know, Mets fans have it with baseball or whatever, of fate that there's this overarching um, working of fate which overhangs the, the play and where the players are the playthings of fate um, where surprising things sometimes happen but they usually don't and, um, and we know that so there's something about there's something about almost you know prophecy and foreknowledge in football which is interesting like we know you know I don't know what people feel here about the English national team it would be a long conversation. Mostly for just kind of indifference these days. Yeah. But again, we um, know this, We know what's going to happen. Mm. We know what's going to happen in, in June. But it July. might not. But it might not. <laughs> and there's still that sense of there's still that hope that things might be different. But you yeah. know it's not. You know that fate is going to destroy whatever interesting group of people or uh, players are able to be put together under the iron will of Gareth Southgate. <laughs> you know. So that sense in which. And also that the fate is local. That interests me. The way in which, you know, in football, all the national stereotypes are true. Right? And, and, and all of the local stereotypes are true. And, there's, and, that, and that's another thing which is interesting. The way in which, you know, I remember being in a, in a pub in... You live in Dalston, right? Yeah. I live, so I used to be, this, this is in Dalston. It was a long, long time. About 2001, two, something like that. There was an Irish pub... And it was an Arsenal game that was on live. Right. You know, as you know, look, you know. Arsenal, a local team, really. Arsenal, yeah. Irish team in London. Mm. And, and, but by this time, the, the team had transitioned to Wenger and mainly French players. Mm. And there was a total ease of reference with which the, the fans in the pub would refer to, you know, Thierry or whoever it was. Mm. Pierre or whatever. So you, you're probably so, not so fond of him now, but, yeah. 
<laughs> Why? <laughs> well, the handball in 2009. Oh, right. oh yeah, the, the, the handball. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's true. There's some video evidence for that. But the, th the point is that there's something about the, the in intense locality of football mm. and its malleability, that you can shift it, that you can completely reconfigure the geography of football, mm. which is what's happened in the, in the Premier League in the last 10, 15 years. And those local attachments are still there in a transformed form, right? So being a Manchester City fan is still being a Manchester City fan. Mm. Must be nice to, to win like that, but the, the team has changed completely. But there's still that, that local reality is still there. And that's what's funny, that's another strange thing about football, that you know, you can, uh, a, a team can completely be transformed through a change of ownership, or whatever, Leicester City, for example. You know, that, that. And yet, something endures about the character of that team and that city and that place and that's uh, when that happens it's lovely yeah i mean <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting um you know you talk about the sort of the sort of hidden or maybe not so hidden hands that you know maybe make football uh, more kind of predictable um or less interesting but yeah i mean there is there is a kind of there's a kernel to football which i think it is impossible to kill entirely you know, we live in an age of kind of very entrenched neoliberalism and these huge, huge sums of money being paid. By How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I, you know, the sort of top teams to, um, to you know, secure the best players and the best managers, etc., uh, and yet Leicester City still won the Premier League. Yeah. Um, and they really shouldn't have done. And, you know, I'd been saying for about a decade before Leicester won the Premier League that it was impossible for anybody outside a cohort of about three or four teams right. to ever win it again. So football, football does still retain the capacity for the sort of unexpected. Mm. Um, even Particularly in the international the football. Australia. I think so. I mean... Iceland last year. Yeah. Costa Rica um, in the last World Cup. I mean, there's, there's something about the spontaneity of international football, the mm -hmm. fact that the players maybe aren't so familiar with each other that, that allows for more unexpected things to, to happen. 
Um, I mean, I was just going to give one of my favourite examples of this, which was um, something Uli Hesse mentions in the history of German football. He talks about the East German League. And um, the East Germans uh, kind of wanted to reorganise their National Football League along what they saw as sort of communistic lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, they took the team from Chemnitz in the early 50s. Uh, they took the team from Chemnitz and decided that there was going to be a new powerhouse called Locomotive Chemnitz or something. Right. Uh, and they basically forced the entire quite successful Chemnitz team to join this new Locomotive side, thinking this will be the best team in East Germany. And then the following season, the kind of the rump Chemnitz team won the league. Um, and at that point, the East Germans kind of thought, oh, we don't understand this sport, it's stupid. Let's just like pump weightlifters full of steroids and then they'll win. Right. Um, and you can't do that with football. It, it, never, mm. it never quite works. Indeed, at the end of the 70s, the head of the secret police, Eric Mielke, decided that Dynamo Berlin, the secret service team, were going to be the best team in East Germany. So he basically just made all the best players join Dynamo, who are often the beneficiary of like incredibly strained refereeing decisions. They won the league 10 years in a row, and the attendances dropped through the floor because nobody wants to watch that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no satisfaction, even if it's your team, if you, know, if you know there's no spontaneity, if you know there's no possibility for like, fate to, to be contradicted. I, I think there's no interest. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, there's, you know, obviously the first thing that has to happen with football is the root and branch sourcing out of FIFA and, and UEFA yeah. and the way in which, I mean, that, you know, that would, be a, that would be a start. There are things that can be done. It doesn't seem to be happening, you know what I mean? No, um, sort of individuals stand down, but the structure remains kind of largely the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anyone who's interested in kind of football and corruption, some of the sort of moral and financial problems with it would do well to watch uh, Adam Sobel's new documentary, The Workers' Cup. I don't know if you've seen this no, or heard about that. it. Um, but he basically follows a group of immigrant workers in Qatar working on the new stadia for the preposterous enterprise is the 2022 World mm-hmm. Cup that's going to have to be played at night time in like January because um, it's going to be too hot to play at any other time. Um, but these migrant workers, um, basically to kind of keep them interested and foster some sort of solidarity between them. A sort of tournament is organised for the workers of each company. Um, and there's like one, one individual in the film, for example, who's come from Ghana because his agent, he's like a sort of promising young footballer, and his agent has promised to find him a club in Qatar that he can use as a springboard to play in Europe. Um, and he ends up working on the stadia and just like playing in this like sort of amateur kind of weekend thing. But um, you know, he just gets completely screwed over by this agent who just takes his money and dumps him in this inescapable job. And the film is full of kind of characters like that, so I'd, I'd recommend that. I mean, we should probably open up to questions from the, um, the audience sure. soon. Um, so I don't know if there's, there's any uh, part of the book maybe you'd like to read or um, any extracts that you want to, to give to kind of set a tone for a, for a Q&A. Mm. Um, Maybe, what is it like to be a bull? Let's have it. Football is a game of movement, shape and form, which is neither objective in any naturalistic sense that could be explained through the procedures of empirical science, nor is it merely subjective. So if we need to desubjectify football, something I argue with, we need to not a subjective approach, then equal measure we need to de-objectify it too. What I mean by this slightly <laughs> ugly wording is that football takes place in the in-between, Football is played in between the realms of subjectivity and objectivity. That modernity has spent so much time seeking to rigidify, notably in Kant's laborious, admirable, but ultimately questionable critical project. 
To borrow the jargon of the influential French philosopher and former naval officer Michel Serre, football takes place and is played in the Middle Kingdom by quasi-objects and quasi-subjects, namely by players who are not defined by their subjective intentions in a game that is not explained by objective causal powers. In order to understand the phenomenon of play, we do not just need to get out of our heads and our obsession with psychology, consciousness and inner states. We also need to grant a certain life to the things that fill the field of play, for they're far from being merely lifeless, inanimate objects. If we locate football in the Middle Kingdom, in the in-between of quasi-objects and quasi-subjects, and this gives us a way of approaching the peculiar mixture of reality and unreality that defines the experience of a football match, and with which we're utterly familiar, even if that familiarity is rarely made explicit. In other words, football takes place in the realm of fantasy, in the strong sense, the strong psychoanalytic sense. Fantasy is neither make-believe, it's not subjective delusion, nor is it objectively real. It is that which structures and saturates what we think of as everyday life, a life which finds a particularly intense articulation in the phenomenon of football. For example, think about the moment when you enter a major football stadium, like the Arsenal Emirates Stadium in London, or the Stade de France in the Saint-Denis, just outside Paris. You enter the ground, try and orientate yourself, walk through wide, windowless concrete halls lined with overpriced concession stands, then you walk up to the steps towards the daylight, or even better, floodlights to find your seat. Then you see the pitch and the entire stadium shining, gleaming. It's real, but too real, hyper real, almost too much. It's like watching a movie with an entirely immersive 360-degree sensorium. It's real and unreal at once. We do not feel inside our heads, but out there in the middle kingdom. It's the empire of the senses, the realm of the in-between. Sensate ecstasy. We're here under the spell of what William James calls mysterious sensorial life. Which is to say that there's no immediacy to football, no direct access to a realm of pure subjectivity or objectivity. Every aspect of football is mediated. And mediation is not some falling away from immediacy, but the very way in which the phenomenon is presented. In other words, football is mediation all the way down. Perhaps football shares these features with cinema, which is at once completely real and completely invented, both real and unreal, two in one. And then I talk about the bull. But that's enough, right? I don't want to go on too long. <laughs> but I try and give some life to the bull and look at the football from the bull's perspective. Because if you, if, you, if you abandon the idea that uh, football is explained through subjective intentions or is explained through objective data, then, and it's located in this in-between of the field of play, the phenomenon of play, then the objects which make up that field also take on a life. Mm. And when you're playing football, you know this, the ball is alive, the pitch is alive, every aspect of the thing is alive. Obviously, an animistic conception of the universe is untrue mm. empirically, except in football where it's true. You live that animistic sense of the universe. You feel when you're watching a game that the cosmos is alive and resounds with a kind of meaning. You leave the game and the whole thing stops. I mean, and that's, that's kind of how one of the very best books on football I've ever read is um, The Ball is Round by David Goldblatt, which mm -hmm. is an astonishing, I think it's over a thousand pages, absolutely incredible kind of, I'd say more or less Marxist history of football, spanning from the games, the sort of professional organised games origins in like British public schools in the sort of mid-Victorian period. 
um, right through to what was then the present, which I think is like the World Cup in South Africa, taking the development of the game kind of all over the world and, you know, the finance of the game, tactics, how it's played, yeah. fan culture, everything. And, um, you know, that title, The Ball is Round, uh, sort of, you know, refers to the only thing that's been constant in the sort of, you know, coming up to 180 years or something of of organised professional football. Um, and the answer, I think it was Sepp Herberger, the, um, the German football manager from 1931 to 1960, um, kind of he was going into a game where the other team was expected to, to roundly beat the Germans. And he said, I think we can win. And the interviewer said, why do you think you can win? And he said, because the ball is round. Which is basically his way of saying you know, anything can happen, the ball can go anywhere because of its shape. Um, mm -hmm. Incidentally, to, to give an idea of like how football people kind of work, this is one more of my favourite little uh, kind of anecdotes about football before we go to questions. Sepp Herberger was, was manager of the German and then West German national football team from the early 30s to 1960. He kept hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of kind of diaries where he worked out his ideas, who he wanted to put in the team, etc. He doesn't mention politics once in any of his like 700 odd pages of journals. No mention of anything that's happening outside of football. Right, in that um, period. In a very sort of, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't, yeah. There's quite a lot going on in Germany in that time. And, um, yes. And none of it impacts on him at all. So, you know, I think that's as interesting a sort of um, illustration into the mind of the football obsessive as, as we're gonna get. Yeah, um, and, there, and there can be, I mean, again, it would be lovely if football served our desired political aims, right? Yeah. But it doesn't. Football is, the ball is round and football is malleable. So you can, we can think of examples like the 1998 French World Cup winning team, mm. which was, you know, obviously a potent political critique of the Front National yeah, in France absolutely. at that time. And, and it, it produced another image, a counter image of the French nation, which had extraordinary effect. And at the same time, we can think about Argentina winning the World Cup in 1978 mm -hmm. with political prisoners in the stadium that was next to the stadium. They won it. The fact that Brazilian football grows up under different forms of dictatorship and so on and so forth. So there's nothing nice about football. Football is something which is, um, it, it, you know, it, it adapts to different political forms. Um, and so, it, you know, to that extent, there's something um, compromised about football mm. and the enjoyment of it for me, which I think is essential. It's not that Again, like, I don't want people to feel good about it. I want there to be a kind of language which allows this strange experience to become explicit. But I think that um, there's something about the collaborative movement of players on a pitch, whoever they meet, and something about the beauty of that and mm. something about the fact that that is something that takes place in relationship to law, a law which can be shifted and there can be cheating and all of that and at the end of the book I talk about Norbert Elias mm. uh, and you know he's got this famous book The Civilizing Process and he sees football and football is football is a is a, a sport which is part of a pacification process for him it's part so actual war becomes symbolic war in football um, it's not the whole picture by any means, right? It's much more complicated, but there's something of that in it. There's something that takes place. The fact that you can have uh, deeply held bitter hatreds of, you know, another team. Ipswich, for Ipswich. example. Yeah. For, perfectly re for perfectly good reasons. And that 
you know, might at a certain point lead to blows. It might mm. also might not, you know. And it, and it also at a certain point you could lead you to change your mind. There's something about football which is, it's good. Sure I like is. it. It's my favourite thing. I really actually. like I mean, it. I, I love the poetry <laughs> of Guillaume Apollinaire and I love the films of Maya Deren and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there's very few feelings that I prefer to just like five minutes to three, just walking to my seat and sort of seeing what might unfold in front of me. Um, and also where nothing happens. This, all, yeah, th- yeah. Th- this, is, th- this is what's difficult with an American audiences. You know, <clears throat> people, you sit watching a game in New York and they'll say, hey, Great shot! Watch the game. Great shot! He kicked it. He kicked it. Danny, um, Danny it- Blanchflower, the the Tottenham legend, he got sacked as a commentator on the I think the old North American Soccer League in the seventies for refusing to call every shot great. Right. But you give yourself. But, you, but, but in football, do you not? I mean, when you when you there you are five to three and you sit down, you give yourself over to something. There's, yeah, there's, yeah. The, 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 there's a flow to football. There's a, a meditative flow to this this phenomenon, which is for me is unlike any other sport. And it, you know, and what, this is nothing I pick up. It, there's a kind of pensiveness. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pensive distance that we have as the experience of a spectator, mm. which can be wanting your team to win the obvious stuff, but also you know, go and see a game where you've got nothing invested. Where mm. you just go and see a game just because it's a lovely thing to watch a game. And you give yourself over to that flow of human movement and there's something about that which is incredibly powerful oh absolutely i mean a lot of the you know the emotional highs and lows of football you know whether you support a team or not are precisely to do with the fact that you cannot really affect it Mm -hmm. um i mean you know just to to give one more little example before we go to questions i um i was at norwich's first division game against derby county on saturday it was one all norwich had just equalized one of my favorite players the defender tim closer um, had just scored an equaliser and I, I'm quite near the pitch behind one of the goals that Norwich are defending at and he comes over and he goes like this to get the crowd to give the team a lift so I got a chant going of we love you Tim, we do and everyone sang it and he kind of applauded and then ran off and I thought wow man I've really given the team a lift here and then two minutes later Derby scored the winning goal so um, that's, that's kind of football that's why we do it um, anyway I think I mean, I could talk about Tim Closer for hours. Um, he's big, he's Swiss, he's got a house in Dis. But um, <laughs> we're, we're going to go to questions now, because like, we don't need any more of that. So, um... Hi. Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask, I mean, I completely agree about the, the idea that, that ethical football within a capitalist structure is impossible. But so many people who write books about football sound so disappointed by that despite the fact that it's so completely self-evident. I'm thinking of David Conn's recent book about FIFA. He's been covering FIFA corruption for 20 years, and yet he still writes about it in this way that, that is sort of so completely devastated by it. And I, I, I can't really figure out why that is. I don't know whether... Is it because people interact with it for the first time as children and then still interact with it in the same way as adults? Or why is it that there is such a kind of disconnect between reality and... Uh, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's good. No, I think, yeah, maybe, yes, flipping it around a bit. I mean, I, I take, in a sense, I like the corruption of football. Mm, same. I like the fact that it's not clean, that it's, that it's, that it's messy. I like cheating as well. I mean, cheating mm. is good. So football, football's codified as a series of laws, the 17 rules of the game. 
International Football Association boards, they meet in London in AC, all that whole story. I tell us, it's an interesting story. But football is about law. There cannot be football without law, but then law is something which is malleable and bend, bendable. You know, what if, you know, FIFA were completely reformed, you're running FIFA, yeah, and uh, Norwich was, just won their thirty Norwich Champions League. <laughs> <and Rome. laughs> yeah. Everything was fine. We wouldn't be happy. That's just the way things are. So there's something about that we delight in the kind of pollution and awfulness of football. And yet, there can be these moments when, like at the moment, it's really exciting. The, the, you know, the games last night. You think, Jesus. But you know, as a, Spurs beat Real Madrid. I don't. But you know, that's as a microcosm for life. I mean, oh, I don't know. I am constantly disappointed by kind of you know government corruption. <sighs> I mean, you know, I'd like to live in, like, sort of full global communism um, that, you know, wasn't corrupt in any way. Probably not going to get that. We're not going to get a non-corrupt football. You find a way to relate to it. I mean, yeah, I find that really interesting, that point about sort of coming to football as a child and having that sort of Corinthian spirit that people won't cheat and the game won't be be corrupt. I mean, I just I just think corruption structured into FIFA. I mean, it's, it's you know, this mm-hmm. sort of monolithic global governing body with, you know very little to kind of stand up to it or threaten to replace it. I don't really see how it can end up being anything other than, than monstrously, monstrously corrupt. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think for me, I sort of accept the sort of corruption of football and accept kind of cheating, but, or not accept, I acknowledge it. And I sort of, you know, I prefer to acknowledge it rather than accept it. But I think it has to be a, a starting point for any writing about football and any writing about football that kind of pretends that this stuff is fixable, really, I think, is, yeah. is you know, deluding itself. There's but there's a difference between the sort of the, the cheating on the pitch and cheating mm-hmm. in order to win a game, which I often find very funny, and, uh, you know, the level of kind of corruption oh, yeah, sure. with an organisation like FIFA. I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people have died building these stadia in Qatar. No, it's a, it's, um, it's a monstrosity. It's a completely different mm-hmm. uh, type of corruption. Um, sure. But yeah, I, I'm not sure I can explain why, like you say, David Conn continues to be surprised by this. I'd be more surprised if it was, was fixed, really. Mm-hmm. Hi, um, I just wanted to know why, why you thought football occupied this middle kingdom between the subjective and the objective, or is more potentially uh, socialist in nature than any other team sport? And uh, if so, what, why uh, do, do you think that socialist or middle kingdom nature is found throughout all football because it seems to me the manifestation of say women's football compared to a knockabout in the park compared to the Premier League compared to national football is is kind of so, so different. Do they all have this this socialist middle kingdom thread running through them all? Well, the middle kingdom is an argument about that's a claim that when we're the phenomenon of play right? when you when you when you're engaging in uh, watching this phenomenon of play, it's not in here and it's not in any objective data it's in this middle kingdom this this in-between realm which is the realm of experience life right? and that's what um that's that's what has to be described that that football takes place there and that's where uh, a lot of the emphasis should be placed rather than on the way football's normally talked about the socialism stuff is wish fulfillment on my part i want it to be true and i know it's not that's it's, it's kind of it's to be it's, it's to be as you mm. know, starkly clear as possible that's it I want Bill Shankly to be right about socialism but even his remarks about socialism are woefully incoherent right <laughs> because you know he's uh, arguably you know some kind of socialist and Liverpool football club was was um, became a great team because of money mm-hmm. 
uh, and through mm. investment. And so, I mean, you, there was you know you had to buy, you had to buy Yates and mm. you know, Keegan and and Doug Leash. And this this at the time was huge amounts of money that required investment. So, the socialism bit is wish fulfillment. It's my personal fantasy, as it were, about the game. The, you could just say the game is just is something else. Is it distinct from other team sports? That's difficult to say because you know you could say if someone says no, it's not, then we'd need to sit down and examine exactly what we mean. For me, what interests me about football is what happens when the whistle blows and that that movement, that shape and movement of bodies uh, and things begins to articulate in a nearly unending movement for 90 minutes. And so that that's distinctive about football, whereas if you think about other sports like baseball or whatever it might be, it's more stop-start. So... Uh, there's something about that, 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 that flow that, that really gets me. And then what, uh, and the fact that a, a team can be, as it were, objectively a poor team in terms of, but they can play together in such a way, collaboratively, to mm. produce this something beautiful and effective. So, most recent example of that is it's Iceland, right? The, the goalkeeper was a you know video artist or whatever he was. It was, it was great, you know, and they beat England three days after nah, Brexit. That's not that impressive. <laughs> well, no, but still, it was no, it was no, it poetic. was incredible. It was poetic, result, you know, yeah, it was poetic. And yeah, politically, it was perfect. I mean, you can knock the England team all you want, but you can't knock their comic timing. That's right. Um, that's right. So two distinct claims. The Middle Kingdom claim, I think, is I can justify. Socialism is just kind of. I wish that were true. <laughs> Going away from the nastiness of football, something that really interests me about your book is how you speak on the um, the idea of euphoria in football and this sort of out-of-body experience of sharing a goal with your mm-hmm. fellow fans. And, you know, before um, the drug ecstasy appeared in the nightclubs of Manchester and London, it, it came via the football stands. And I was wondering if you could speak on, on that part or yeah, on, well, on the notion of euphoria in your book. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I, it's, I call it a sensate ecstasy, um, football. You know, what I mean by that is just that we're, when we're, we're watching a game, we're out there. We're not in our heads. We're out there. Uh, and there's this, the withness of that experience which interests me. So that's, that's all true. And the euphoria is a euphoria which, you know, when you, you see a game, something extraordinary can happen. A, mo- a shift of players, a movement, and then there's a goal, and then what? But there's two qualifications to that. The first thing that interests me really is the, the pensive distance of the fan with regard to the euphoria. So you can give yourself over to this euphoria. But it's not as if football fans are kind of wildly jubilant all the time. It's not the case. There's a, there are moments of ecstasy and then long stretches of reflective distance, and it's that that interests me. And a second thing to speak against the argument in my book, um, you know, this is the, we haven't mentioned Jurgen Klopp because, um, for for whatever reason, but (laughs) I draw on the fact that, you know, Jurgen Klopp was born less than 100 kilometers from where Heidegger taught to make these weird connections between Klopp's analysis of the moment, he's always the moment, and, and Heidegger's analysis of ecstatic temporality and being in time, with which I'm sure you're all 
ecstatically happy to talk about now. But there was a weird, <laughs> but, but this is a very romantic book in that sense. I'm, I'm, it's a very romantic evocation of football with this stuff, there's this corruption, this nasty stuff, this disgust at, at the same time. A counterexample of that, which interests me enormously, and I'd like to think about more, is, is, is Mourinho. Mm. Right? So you take, you know, did Manchester United fans, when they won the Europa uh, last major, did they experience ecstasy? No, they witnessed, as it were, the cold mechanism of Mourinho's... You're speaking as a Liverpool fan, but... No, yeah. but I think, it, I think that there's a kind of... There's, there's, no, but if we begin, if we take... If we, if we just take the contrast between Guardiola and Mourinho, mm. right? Here we have a kind of, you know, Guardiola kind of, kind of intellectual approach, which is bound up with some romance of what Barcelona achieved, that way of playing football, that's what it's about. Mm. And against that, we have the, kind of the anti-football of Mourinho, mm. the cold Adornian modernism <laughs> of, of Mourinho. And there's something about that which interests me. That, yeah, yeah. And Mourinho as, as a creature is fascinating. I find him really interesting. Yeah, because of his, his unwilling, his, his, a, yeah, at the moment he's, he's deliberately pissing off the United fans, right? Mm. Fantastic start to the season, series of extraordinary results, and yet he seems to be deliberately waging a war against the fans. He has to have conflict, yeah. I think. That's how he works. I mean, yeah. at Chelsea, he sort of picked this stupid fight with the team dots. Right because there was no tension, he had to generate some, and of course it destroyed him in the end, as it generally tends to do. I mean, there's, there's a really, you know, Mourinho's a really interesting sort of tragic figure, I think. I mean, when he managed Real Madrid, you know, there's this long rivalry with Barcelona. Barcelona have this, um, this, you know, this very sort of idealistic street to them, which some people might find a bit disingenuous or irritating, not naming any names, uh, but I do. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot to admire about Barcelona in lots of ways. Real Madrid have this history of being the sort of a propaganda tour for Francisco Franco. Sure. And, you know, What's spending out obscene in amounts is, of yeah, yeah, um, yeah. money on these kind of Galactico star players. Mm. And Mourinho, having been kind of belittled by Barcelona, where he first worked, became a manager, goes back to Real Madrid, really with the intention of, like, breaking and destroying Guardiola, mm. which I think he actually kind of did, mm. uh, but at considerable cost to himself. Um, I mean, I, in your book, you, you sort of mentioned that David Peace's football novels didn't quite grab you, but I really loved um, The Damned United for the way it captures this kind of mixture in Brian Clough of sort of hatred and grudges and kind of idealism. Yeah. He goes to Leeds, yeah. who he's had this sort of, you know, 10-year-long feud with Don Revy, the Leeds manager, and endlessly publicly criticising Leeds in the press, mm -hmm. but then staggeringly gets given this job and goes in wanting to kind of reform Leeds United from top to bottom and, you know, tells all the players immediately that they can throw all their fucking medals and trophies in the bin because they won them all by cheating. Medal. And then, funnily enough, that sets them against him. And it gets worse. <laughs> um, but the, the key moment in the book is where Brian Clough says to, like, Norman Hunter, like, who was just known as Bites Your Leg Hunter. Norman Bites Your Leg Hunter. Basically was... Every, every team in the 70s, like, had at least one player who was just there to, like, just kick people up in the air. Like, even Liverpool had Tommy Smith. Oh, yeah. Um, but Leeds Tommy had, like, pretty much a whole team of them. Um, but Tommy Hunter, uh, Norman Hunter was, like, the worst of them. And Clough says to him, don't you want to be loved? And he just says, I don't give a fuck. Um, and Clough doesn't know what to do there. But, you know, Clough has that interesting mixture of kind of, like, hatred and burning grudges, but also, like, idealism. One of my favourite performances ever, actually, was um, Inter Milan's second leg of the, I think it's the 2010 Champions League semi-final against Barcelona. Oh, where they're nullified Where they're 3-1 up yeah, yeah. from the first leg. And they go to the new comp and they have, school, they have, I think, 15% of the possession. Mm -hmm. So they just let Barcelona keep the ball. Yeah. 
and they just they just say right well we don't need the ball mm-hmm. um, and Sergio Busquets gets one of their players sent off by kind of like falling to the ground and kind of doing this and looking at the referee while he's rolling around on the floor um, and in to have a player sent off but they, the sort of 10 men just hold on to to hold on to just losing 1-0 and they, they go through and it's mm-hmm. it's astonishing I mean it's a genuinely brilliant piece of play um, so another way, so another way, final, approach to football is to see, you know, to see, you know, so I've got this, you know, Heideggerian <laughs> romanticism in this book, but you could, you could argue for a really cold kind of, a much colder kind of abstraction mm. that I see, I see brilliantly exercised by someone like Mourinho as a kind of intellectual clarity to his approach. I, don't, I wouldn't want him to be Liverpool manager, but, <laughs> but then again, the problem with Liverpool is that, you know, Liverpool just wallows in, you know, Self-righteousness and uh, nostalgia, sentimentality, yeah. and you know nostalgia. You know, so there's that, that's the problem with. Yeah, I mean, also your defence is terrible, like really, really. Bad. Yeah. yeah. Just to share an anecdote that I shared with um, with Simon earlier, and I want to share with with you, kind of apropos what we've just been talking about. We talked about cheating on the pitch, and most of the time I don't like it, actually. I don't like to see players kind of diving or waving imaginary cards at referees to get other players sent off, whatever. You know, I, I have this sort of childlike Corinthianness to me, but there's points where I can't help but admire it. And um, one of them is um, Marco Materazzi, who, of course, um, was the player who, like, got Zidane sent off in the 2006 World Cup final, like, apparently by saying something about Zidane's sister, although I don't think we'll ever really know. Mm-hmm. But a few years earlier, he was playing for Inter Milan, and he was injured. He wasn't fit to play in this, this Champions League game. And the Inter Milan manager takes him aside and says, look, Marco, I'm going to start you in this match because um, Newcastle United have got this very good, very dangerous, but very quick-tempered centre-forward called Craig Bellamy. And um, what I want you to do is just like provoke him into taking a swing at you and get him sent off. And then once you've done that, I'll, um, I'll sub you. So Matarazzi starts this match... Uh, it takes him four minutes and 32 seconds <laughs> to wind up Craig Bellamy so much that he throws a punch at Matarazzi, which misses. Bellamy gets sent off, which is still the fastest sending off in Champions League history. And then 10 minutes later, when just enough time had passed, so it wasn't just like brazenly obvious that that was the only reason he'd been playing at all, they just subbed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's brilliant. I think that's, that's so... That's kind of so far beyond any sort of idealism <laughs> about how you play football. Like, the level of cynicism there is mm. such that I can't help but admire it. Yeah, me too, yeah. Uh, and obviously it's hilarious. I mean, that's really... Like, a lot of the time, the main thing I want from football is a laugh. Football is incredibly funny. Yeah. It's staggeringly funny. The crowds are funny. I mean, most of the time it's like grown men acting like five-year-olds. And what's not to enjoy about that? Okay. Um, I was interested uh, when you were talking about watching uh, football games where you don't support one particular team. Yeah. And obviously in this day and age with people moving around the world, watch, you're talking about watching a Torino game recently. We watch a lot of football on TV. Um, do you think the poetics of football, are we able to appreciate it very differently when we aren't supporting a team? Or are we always inclined to support a team when we're watching and how does that affect the sort of distancing effect, the Brechtian effect that you were it's talking different. about? I, I enjoy, I, I enjoy, I don't enjoy watching Liverpool play. I really don't. It's a long <laughs> agony because I just want them to, I just want them to destroy the opposition. I don't want a game. I just want it to be 6-0. <laughs> I want one of their players to, you know, to die or something like that. <laughs> I don't want a fair game. I want my team to crush the opposition. But other teams, I can enjoy that. And so I find that I watch games, 
I dread watching the Liverpool game at the weekend because, mm. particularly with the press, you just you know you start watching a, you know, an alcoholic in front of a drinks cabinet, and they're just going to go for that drink, and the whole thing's going to collapse. <laughs> and there's such fragility, in the, and you know you know what's going to happen, and it does because we've not got a central defender who's any good, and we, our goalkeepers, two goalkeepers. They're really they're, flappy, aren't yeah, they? Yeah. They're flappy. They're flappy. They're six foot tall, and they're useless. And <laughs> they're good. Well, one of them's really good looking. Which is confusing, Laurent Carrius, but he's still useless. <laughs> so, um, other team, but it's watching, so watching, so I love watching games. What's great about the World Cup is that, where you've got no investment, mm. and you've got three games back to back, and you can say, I'm going to give myself entirely to this for the whole <laughs> two weeks, and do nothing but watch endless games of football. Uh, and then you learn all these things about the world, it's great. So I love that, that flatness. Watching it, being there live is obviously different. Mm. But most of the football I watch is on TV if because I'm, of where I live. If I'm watching Norwich on telly, then yeah, I'm kind of like you. Like everything is just about being desperate for them to win and win easily in the least stressful way. But Ideally, when you're there, like it's three nil up after like ten minutes or something. Mm. But you know, when I'm there, I'm more interested in like just having a laugh with my mates who kind of, right. you know, same people standing around me every week and you know just the sort of experience of being at the game and just the sort of regularity of <laughs> having something to do and. The more I go to the games, actually, the less bothered I am about the results. And even then, my, my perspective changes according to things. Like, if we're in the, the first division, then fewer of our games get moved to, like, stupid times on, like, a Sunday morning because of Sky. Yeah. At a time when it's really hard for me to, to go and see them. Um, I think one of the most beautiful things I've seen recently was um, Sky put Crystal Palace against Sunderland on a Monday night. And they were doing their stupid vox pops around the stadium and, um, and going up to all these Sunderland fans and saying, <laughs> you maniac, what sort of stupid obsessive would, would come to Crystal Palace from Sunderland on a Monday night? Why have you come here? And the bloke just folds his arms and just says, because of you lot. Um, right. And um, yeah, so, so you know, your concerns are, are kind of different as, as someone who's kind of going to support a team regularly as opposed mm. to someone who's watching on TV. And yeah, I mean, I have a similar experience when I watch, you know, if I'm traveling, I'll quite often take in a game of football or two. And, you know, I'm actually, if I'm, I'm at a game where I don't support a team, again, I'm much more interested in like the fan culture. Yeah. And just, yeah. you know, things like, especially if I'm in another country. Yeah, the chants, the songs, the noise. Yeah. Okay. The half-time drinks. I think we're in injury time now, aren't we? I think we are, yeah. 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 It's been a lot of time wasting on my part. <laughs> added quite a bit of time. Stop, so. he's a like, roll around on the floor and yeah, again yeah. if he wants after as well. Um, please stick around, there's books for sale, but before you do that, please give our guests a huge round of applause. Thank you so Cheers. much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.